I've got good news for you today. Under a chair, yeah, see, one person's excited about that. Anyone else excited about that? See, it's often said of churches, isn't it, that they, they exist to take people's money. Well, we're going to give some away today. Is that good news? Is that good news? Come on, you live in a materialistic, Western, consumer-driven society. There's, it, well, let me tell you, here's the good news. There is $50 that I've put under a chair in this room. So I'll give you two minutes. Find it. See if it's your chair. It's under a chair. It's there. I put it there. We've got it. Someone's got it. It's all right. Stop looking. Oh, now you've got to confess the sin of covetousness. All right, well, maybe the lucky winner. Would you like to come out the front here for a minute? <laughs> you want to just uh, introduce yourself to the crowd there? Uh, my name is Genevieve, and I go to school here at TCC. Excellent. And you've just won $50 yep. by doing nothing. Yep. So just tell us how you feel. Um, I think it's fake, so I don't know. <laughs> I'll take it out. Take it out. That's real. <laughs> All right. Can you, um, yeah, yeah, let's give her a round of applause. She, uh, I don't know, she did something to deserve it. I guess she looked under a chair. Uh, can you just tell us, like, um, how, I mean, just give us, you know, has it, has it changed your life? Um, I'm $50 richer. There you go. <laughs> so not that much. Yeah. All right. Great. Round of applause for Genevieve. Hey, hey, that's yours. No yeah, it is. Yeah, I am serious. <laughs> see, now she doesn't believe it. So, see, it hadn't... Ch- that's interesting, isn't it? Now it's changed her life a little bit. Is that true? Tiny bit. I don't know, she feels awkward now. Well, listen, I wonder if... Uh, let me ask this. What, what would it be like for you if there was a, a check, a bank check, a blank bank check under your chair for $10 million? Would that change your life? Well, or maybe. I probably would. Agreed? What would you say? You'd probably... One of the things you might say is you might go, yeah, yeah, right, the project doesn't have that kind of money. And you'd be right. And you'd say, Peter, you don't have that kind of money. Uh, I've got 50 bucks. Uh, but in case you didn't know, the name Sondergeld means without money. So <laughs> don't come to me looking for a loan. Now, what's really interesting about it is if I said to you, and I could actually make it happen, that there was a blank bank check for $10 million under your chair, that would actually change your life going into the future. And the big idea behind what I'm trying to say here is that that's what actually what a gospel is. And we're going to get to this in a minute. A gospel is good news, but it's not just good news. It's good news that actually changes your life. It's good news that changes the world. It's, good, it's, it's like almost kind of cataclysmic news. It's like everything else gets reinterpreted in the light of whatever the gospel is. And if you've got a Bible, you can look it up. But this is the only verse we're going to look at today. Some of you go, yeah, two years, righto. But we're going to do one verse today. And the verse is this. 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The very first verse in the book of Mark. And so today, what I want to do is I want to show you four things today. That the book of Mark is a good news story. The book of Mark is a true gospel. The book of Mark is a dynamic gospel. And the book of Mark is a life-altering gospel. The first one I want to kick off with is what I've just uh, been sharing with you then. The word gospel actually in the original Greek actually means news that brings joy. Now, the $50 I just gave away probably brought awkwardness at the end, all right? But if I could say to you, if I said to you there's $10 million under your seat, that would bring you some level of joy, all right? Now, we actually know, I mean, the Proverbs are pretty clear about the fact that people who get money without working for it tend to waste it away, and there's lots of bad news stories about people who have won a lotto and the fact that they're bankrupt within a few years after that, but the truth is it would bring some kind of change to your life. Uh, there's a really interesting uh, inscription that was actually found in the ancient Greek city of Priene about the time of Jesus. Note this. This is what it says. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Now, what I want to show you through this is I want you to see the concept of gospel actually wasn't a religious concept, fundamentally. The concept of gospel was actually a secular concept. And when they actually wrote this inscription, what you've actually got in uh, the first century is you've got the imperial cult, which is kind of the Roman um, a political scene was actually a, a religion in and of itself. So a lot of the Caesars would actually become divine. And when Caesar Augustus gets born, that gets told to people as a gospel, as not just daily news, but history-making, life-shaping news. It's told of as a historical event. And the historical event introduces a new situation for the world. You see, the story of the birth and the coronation of the ruler is meant to change the world because in the Romans' view, it would actually change the world. It was something that changed the world in a meaningful way. So you can see here when Mark starts his gospel and he says, this is the gospel about Jesus, he's bringing something that's going to change things. He's got some news about something that's really, really good, but it's not just nice news where you might get to the end of a, uh, a news story on the ABC at night a news bulletin and they go well we've had all this bad news now let's have a little piece of good news and you go oh that's nice it's good news that actually changes things and it changes things for you now in about 490 bc there was a battle at marathon some of you might know some of your history where the persians came up against the greeks and uh, I've got a Google Earth image on the left there, and then a uh, photo there of the plain of Marathon where this battle actually happened. Happened in about 490 BC, and it's where the Persians came up against the Greeks, and the Greeks, basically, for all intents and purposes, were going to get slaughtered by the Persians. Uh, it was a supreme force, and they were coming against the Greeks, and the Greeks and were not going to be able to repel them. The thought amongst most people is that uh, the Persians was that it was going to be an easy and an effortless victory but the interesting thing was that the Greeks actually proved them wrong they would not only fight back but they actually defeated the Persians and you know what the the, uh, the Greeks did when they won they sent heralds and evangelists out to tell people about the good news so the actual word 
And, and it, sometimes, I mean, in, in Christian culture, and this is for those who've been Christians for a while, people talk about evangelism, they talk about evangelists, and it takes on a different connotation. The word evangel is actually the, the, the sum total of two things. It's the, the second part of it is, comes from the idea of angel or messenger, and the first part means well. And so it's the idea of a good messenger, someone actually going and telling some good news. And what actually happened um, in this battle of Marathon is a messenger goes out to tell the gospel, an evangelist goes out to tell the gospel of the Battle of Marathon. And it has nothing to do with religion. And a lot of us probably, and if you're, uh, if you're not a Christian here, you've probably got a bit of a negative idea about what an evangelist is. And, and you hear things like tele-evangelists and moral failures and all that sort of stuff. And I want to suggest to you today that we'd probably do well to go back to the original meaning of the idea of what an evangelist is. It's someone who's got some good news to tell, they've got a gospel to tell, that changes things. Uh, Gerhard Kittel, a German Protestant professor, wrote this about the evangelist that came from the Battle of Marathon. The messenger appears, raises a big right hand in greeting and calls out with a loud voice. By his appearance, it is known already that he brings good news. His face shines, his spear is decked with laurel, his head is crowned, he swings a branch of palms and joy fills the city. I've read somewhere else that you could tell when a runner from a battle who is bringing the gospel or the news about the battle, they could tell whether the people had won or lost the battle by the way that the runner ran. And I would throw this out to you. If you're a Christian and you follow Jesus, the way that you run, people can tell the way that you run, whether you've got good news or not. You see, when the runner ran for marathon, you know what it was really saying? It was saying, he was saying, we fought for you, we've won, and you're no longer slaves, you're free. And I'd encourage you, if you're a Christian, you've been following Jesus for a while, to get some more spring in your step. Get some spring in your step. Actually, be happy about it. Now, you didn't win, but Jesus won. And you could say this, you could say, Jesus fought for you. You've won. You're no longer a slave, you can be free. That's, a, that's good news, isn't it? Amen? Is that good news? Now, I can say to you today, I've been very hesitant to say this in the past, because I don't like some of the connotations it has. I'd say all of you need to be evangelists. You need to be messengers that bring good news. You see, there's so many different agendas that people have when they talk about Jesus and when they talk about God and they talk about religion. There's so many different agendas that people have in their heads when they hear someone talk about it. But you know what? Christianity, if it's anything, is pretty much good news. That's what it is. It's good news. So you just want to let people know what the good news is. It's not about getting them to church to get their money. It's not about getting them to agree with you. That's not ultimately, fundamentally what Christianity is. It's not like, I want you to agree with me so you need to become a Christian. What it is, is it's good news. Something good has happened and you just want to tell people the good thing that's happened. Some of you at this point might go, well, what is the good news? What is the gospel? I'm going to show you a quick two-minute clip from a guy called Matt Chandler. The gospel is that there is this infinite, almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful creator God who created all things for his glory. And you and I have belittled that, belittled his name, belittled his glory, 
every one of us have at one time or another, or actually currently, believe that our way is better than God's. We fail to acknowledge, give Him glory for the gifts He's given us. We question His rule and His authority, while at the same time doing that with the brain He gave us and holds together, and the lungs and the air that He gave us to breathe with. This is the great blasphemy of the universe. So we've all belittled God, and God being just right and holy is not going to allow the belittlement of his name. God then, not being able to spare wrath, sends Christ in the flesh and crushes him. And in so doing, pours out his wrath against the children of God onto the Son, killing him. Then God raises him from the dead. And that same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in those who would believe. This is the gospel. That you and I have right standing before God, not by our efforts, not by our works, not by our skill, not by whether or not we cuss or don't cuss, drink or don't drink, watch this, don't watch this, do this, don't do that, justified before God by the cross of Christ alone. Your lust... You're not going to be able to fix it. Your bitterness, you're not going to be able to fix it. Your rage, anger, those deviances that have been following you around, you don't possess the power of life and death. You can't resurrect anything. Christ can. That's the good news. That's why we don't celebrate us. That's why we continually celebrate Him. We boast in the cross and the cross alone, the same power that is at work in raising Christ from the dead, that work in me and work in all who believe. This is the gospel. Is that good news? Absolutely. You know, it's, I mean, I've, I've thought, as I've been preparing this this week, I just thought, why? Why isn't the church known that well sometimes for being tellers of good news? I mean, we get known for lots of things, those who've been in the church for long enough. I mean, if anything, we ought to be known for telling good news. Now, you, you could say, well, part of the good news is what he's talked about there, that people have blown it, and they've blown it catastrophically. It's a catastrophic blowing it. But we ought to have a reputation as people who bring good news, true? You know, I mean, we're not selling it, but we actually have the best product, don't we? Isn't that the easiest product to sell? The one that you believe in, the one that you know is like the actual best one. And the interesting thing is, I, I was thinking about this and I thought, you know, I reckon every single day we're selling something. We do. We talk about stuff and we praise stuff that we like. Well, maybe we praise the help that we get from certain things. We praise TV shows. We sell things. And we're kind of evangelists. We're messengers of good news about things all the time. And I'll just throw it out to, there, out to you there. And I'm certainly not saying it to condemn you, but just for you to be reflective about it. How much are you a good news messenger? You, you talk about the good news. Do you talk about Jesus? Are you actually persuaded that he's the best thing going? Because you know what? He is. He is the best thing going. And it actually, some of you go, well, like, well maybe. I'm just well, I'm telling you, in, the re in reality, he's the best thing going. Now, one of the things I say often is people slip in and out of reality in terms of where they live. And we all do that. 
but he is the most amazing thing going. You know, there's an abundance of bad news in our world, isn't there? I mean, every time you turn the TV on, you've got a story about ISIS, someone getting their head cut off. There's enough bad news in our world. Anyone agree with me on that? There's enough. The world needs good news. True? They need good news. And you know what? God wants you to be someone who takes good news. You need to receive good news for you and you need to take it. And I want to ask you at this point in time, is the gospel, is the gospel boring to you? Now the reason why I'm asking is uh, some of you have been in the church a long, long time and you've heard lots of times someone stand up the front and say, Jesus died for you. He loves you. He died for you. He paid for your sin. He paid for your offences that you've created between you and God. And it's like, really? Like we're going to be doing that for like 16 chapters in the book of Mark. We're going to be talking about Jesus and who Jesus is. And maybe part of you, you just think, oh, it's a bit boring. And I'll be honest with that. I can identify with you. Because I feel like that sometimes. I want to read a quote from a lady called Joyce A. Mercer. It's quite a long one on the screen and the text probably be a bit small for you but she wrote this really interesting article called Children Church and the Problem of Boredom. Let me just read a section of, of what she's written first. She says, social historians identify the problem of boredom as a relatively recent phenomenon, particularly in its, in its expected occurrence among children. Prior to World War II, there was little mention of boredom in relation to children. In fact, the main concern with boredom found expressions in etiquette and advice literature about how to avoid being boring. After World War II, being bored took on greater significance than being boring. Before that time, boredom was more of a condition of existence than a feeling. From the late 1940s on, it was an inflicted state demanding correction by others. She goes on to talk about the two different uh, varieties in, uh, in religious tradition of uh, the ideas of boredom. One of them was uh, acedia or sloth uh, out of the seven deadly sins or even melancholia according to the Renaissance. Um, was a persistent and oppressive form of sorrow or depression. There's a sense in which there's a little bit of boredom in each of those. Listen to what she says here. When children today complain of being bored, the state of which they speak differs considerably from its earlier cousins, acedia sloth and melancholy in terms of causality. These historically earlier cousins of boredom referenced a condition interpreted as a responsibility of the bearer. Listen to this. For example, a monk suffering from ascetia was not the victim of dull surroundings, but was a person committing a sin. This is what it used to be. The sin of disinterest and detachment from the love of spiritual practices. Melancholy sim similarly, similarly, there you go, referred to a state of discontent originating from within the person bearing it. By contrast to both of these conditions, contemporary notions of boredom locate its causes outside of the person. Boredom happens because of an environment that fails to be sufficiently interesting. It is a result of an external lack or failure rather than an internal problem for which the bearer holds responsibility. So what she's saying is prior to World War II, the responsibility for boredom fell on the individual and after World War II what happened is we ended up in a place where the boredom was a result of um, unmet expectations in terms of environment. Do you get that? That's fascinating. 
So what I want to say to you now is, is you might be offended by it, but I don't, I, I say it to myself also. Here it is. If you're bored with the gospel, it's your problem. Okay? If I'm bored with the gospel, it's my problem. Now, is there a responsibility upon uh, a preacher or someone delivering a message to make it interesting and something you can connect with? Absolutely. And if it's a lame message, I'll take responsibility for it. Maybe this is one of them. I don't know. You can be the judge. But you know what? Even in a lame message, you can find riches. True? We're such an entertainment-driven culture that we want things to be a particular way before we can really engage at a heart level. And I think this lady would say, the problem's internal, not external. And my prayer for you today, for everyone today, whether you follow Jesus or you don't follow Jesus, is you would find the gospel scintillatingly fascinating and enriching. You'd find it amazing. And you know what? I don't think you can ever get to the bottom of amazement. Like, can you, will you ever be able to measure the amazement that you'll have at what God's done and what that means for you and how that changes you? I don't think so. Only if something malfunctions internally. So the first thing, Mark, the Gospel of Mark. The book of Mark is a good news story. Second, the book of Mark is a true gospel. You know, this is not, should I say it's not proper English? But when things are true, it makes good news gooder. True? Do you know what? I mean, the, the giving away the $50, there was a kind of moment there was like Genevieve's going, well, that, no, that's not actually going to happen. Like, that's not mine. She left it on the lectern here. But you know what? It's actually better news when it's actually true. You know? And some, some of you have had someone come up and they've tell, told you some amazing news and you've just gone, really? Like, is that actually true? And you no, nah, just give me... Like, it's, it's almost like I'm not going to put my hope in it unless I know that it's actually true. Have you ever done that? This is so good. Now, I reckon it ought to be like that with the news about Jesus because the news about Jesus is so good, you don't want to go putting your hope in it unless you've got a high degree of certainty that it's actually true. And man, I tell you, I struggled with this, I reckon, for about eight years in my life. I struggled with doubt and just thoughts about the faith and I, I wrestled with it and people would come up to me and go, oh, you're really good with apologetic stuff right and giving a defense for the faith and i'm just going well no not really it's just that i've had so many questions and i've read so much and i listen to atheists and i listen to christians and I, I evaluated all that kind of stuff because at the end of the day i've i've got this particular struggle sometimes i tend to be a bit of a skeptic at heart and i've got this struggle sometimes where there can be some really really good news and i'm very reluctant most of the time to believe it 100 percent does anyone, anyone know, know what I'm talking about? It's like, man, that, that is really good. And, and I, really, I actually really want to believe that 100%, but I almost can't bring myself to do it. It's too good to be true, yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I want to give you a few little pieces of evidence about Mark. Part of the reason why I picked Mark to study through uh, for the church for a while is it's actually the earliest written gospel. 
And some people actually say that uh, Matthew and Luke actually borrowed some stuff out of Mark. Pretty much no one's saying that Mark's borrowed anything from any, anywhere. <laughs> He's the earliest written gospel. So let me hopefully put a few little doubts to rest in about a five or ten minute period. Because the thing that people say is people say things like the gospels, they became legend, are part of a legend. Um, but what you've got to realise is when the Gospels were being written, they actually started a new kind of literature. They were an eyewitness biographical account. Um, and if you actually look into them, uh, in Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, it's probably the most helpful. Luke actually writes this. Uh, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainly concerning the things that you have been taught. You see, you can't deny it. And any decent, it doesn't matter whether they're a Christian or not, any decent ancient historian is going to say that the gospel writers were trying to write an eyewitness account. All right? You can't get away from that. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but legend developed and things, flowery things got added to it that weren't there in the first place. But you can't deny the fact that what they were doing is they were actually writing an eyewitness account. Here's another one from Mark 15, verse 21, when Jesus is being led away to be crucified. It says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, let me ask you this. If you wanted to find out if what Mark wrote was true, who would you need to talk to out of that last one? Just call it out. Who? Simon and Cyrene, who else could you talk to? Alexander, who else? Rufus, right? Now, he's obviously writing it because those dudes are probably still kicking around and they're still alive. It's like, man, if you don't believe me, go and talk to Alexander. He lives, you know, he probably even knew where he lived. Go and talk to him. Talk to Rufus. You can call your kid that if you want. Rufus. They're a good name. You see, what he's really saying is that Alexander, Rufus and Simon can all vouch for what I'm saying. So you can go and check it out. See, he's not writing a story where no one needs to vouch for anything and that it's not true and he doesn't need to back anything up. He's actually saying people's names. So here we go. In defence against the concept that the, that the Gospels are made up and, and that they're just legend. Here we go. They were written far too early to be legend. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, um, most ancient historians, Christian, non-Christian, most ancient historians will say that the Gospel of Mark was written somewhere between 50 and 60 AD. Some of them go down to about 45. Now, you've got to realise back in the culture of the day, they had a very strong oral tradition that was going on. um, And you've actually got... um, the writings about Jesus actually being written, um, well, Jesus died around about 33 AD. So it's about 20 years. With a strong oral tradition behind it, that's actually pretty close. The other thing that's really interesting is some of the basics of the gospel that's, that are actually written in Paul's letters, it gets even closer. There's um, some of Paul's letters that are written about 10 to 15 years after Jesus died. Now we're getting really close. 10 to 15 years and this is like a camera flash um, in terms of uh, ancient history Uh, there's nothing that even comes close to this and they even there's even a creed 
in uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul writes down that they can trace back and date back to about three to five years um, after Jesus was uh, crucified and it talks about his death his burial and his resurrection that's really close and you need I remember hearing once that you need about 40 plus years no it's not 40 plus years it's four generations you need four generations to develop substantial legend in stories and you haven't even got it I mean you don't even have one generation and you've got all this data and all this interesting stuff coming out second thing is this the content written in the gospels and the content written in mark is too counterproductive to be legend and you know that you know what i'm talking about there i'm talking about the fact that the disciples in the gospels are depicted as being petty jealous slow-witted and cowards and then they end up leading the church now seriously if you're writing a fiction would you write that i don't think so I mean, would you even write? I mean, the, the Old Testament says, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Now, would you even say that the Saviour in your made-up story is crucified on a tree? To great shame by the Romans and he's killed by the religious people. I mean, I just don't think you're going to do that. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. The third thing is this. The literary form of the Gospels is too detailed to be legend. Listen to this quote from uh, C.S. Lewis. He says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends and myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either it is reportage or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. (laughs) What's he saying? What he's saying is ancient fiction was nothing like modern fiction. Modern fiction is realistic, it contains details, but only developed in about the last 300 years. Is this true? Tim Keller says this, he says, In ancient times, romances, epics or legends were high and remote. Details were spare and only included if they promoted character development or drove the plot. That is why if you are reading Beowulf or the Iliad, you don't see characters noticing the rain or falling asleep with a sigh. In modern novels, details are added to create the aura of realism but that was never the case in ancient fiction. Now, Mark 4.38. Read these last two if you can. Jesus is in a boat with the disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee. What does Mark write? That Jesus was in the stern asleep on a cushion. Like, okay, so? <laughs> do, you get, do you get the point? Like he's actually providing detail there that actually isn't needed for the story. Like, it's almost, it's a bit irrelevant. So he's got his head on a fisherman's pillow. So? And the point here is that if you look at ancient fiction, they just didn't do that sort of stuff. So Mark's not actually writing something that is fictional. And then if you go to John 21, verse 11, so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. (laughs) Okay. That's, no, that's, that's a gospel. That's going to change your life. They caught 153 fish. All right? If you're a fisherman, it's good news. Maybe they should have included the length of them. <laughs> so the question here is, what's the point of the gospel writers including the details? I think the point of it is that they're actually the things that the eyewitnesses 
remember. A uh, theologian, Richard, Richard Borkham, on the psychology of recollective memory, actually makes these points. He said, if someone's relating an eyewitness account, they tend to be selective, they, uh, they fix on things that are unique and, uh, and consequential events, they retain irrelevant detail, it's got a limited vantage point rather than an, an omniscient narr narrator, and they show signs of frequent rehearsals. And he actually says, look, here's the thing, that's what we see when you read the Gospels, you see that. Now, there was a guy, and I think he died uh, about 130 AD. His name was Papias, Bishop of Heropo Heropolis. There you go, I'm getting all the words today. He wrote this. He said that Mark was a secretary and translator for Peter, the disciple. He actually said uh, that Mark wrote accurately all that Peter remembered. And what's really interesting about this is this is the first attested information about who actually wrote the gospel of mark because the gospel of mark doesn't tell you who it is and the interesting thing is this guy papyrus um, the information that we've got is he actually knew the disciple john personally and so what we've actually got in the gospel of mark is you've got a lot of stuff in the gospel of mark about peter in fact the gospel of mark talks about peter more than any other gospel and you know what there's pretty much nothing that happens in the Gospel of Mark where Peter's not present. So it looks like what we've got is we've got Peter the disciple's buddy, Mark, he's kicking around with him, and Mark's writing down all the stuff that Peter saw. And Mark also would have had great opportunities to talk with eyewitnesses who saw Jesus do stuff also. What difference does it make that it's true? Just everything just everything in 1 corinthians 15 paul writes he says he basically says look if we believe something that's false we're of most people to be pitied in the whole world it's pitiful but if jesus has been raised it changes everything so the the book of mark is good news it's a true gospel and the third thing i want to look at it's a dynamic gospel and you know what the gospel of mark it's action packed you read it and most of the stuff happening and it seems to be happening in present tense and it's kind of suddenly it's like this thing happens and then suddenly we're over here and then suddenly we're here and it's just active it's very alive mark 1 verse 12 says this immediately uh, after jesus was baptized it says the spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness and you could do a word search in mark and look up the word immediately and you'll find it a bunch of times because that's how he's writing he's saying well look jesus went and he did this and then after that, this is what happened. And then he did this. And he just gets all kind of, it's, 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 it's a dynamic gospel. It's alive. It's not dry history. The story's abrupt. It's always moving. And you know what I think that indicates? Is that Jesus is not just a historical narrative, but he's a living reality. He's a person addressing us and relevant to us today. You see, Mark 1, 1 is really about the fact that the living God has actually broken into human history. The status quo has been shattered. Got this, uh, I read this great quote from Tim Keller. He says this, he says, Jesus has come, anything can happen now. I meditate on that. Jesus has come, anything can happen now. That's kind of the sense that Mark gives it. He's just going, man, like the slate is clean and anything's on the go. Jesus is a man of action. You see, you read Mark and there's very little of Jesus' teaching in the book of Mark. 
mostly Jesus is doing. And you know what I think this says? I think this says is that you, what this says is that you and I need to do something with Jesus. We can't, we can't just say he's nice. This, I think this is what Mark's up to. He's, he keeps putting things before us and he's saying, you've got to do something with him. You can't just say he's a nice teacher. You can't just say he's a wise man. He pushes you more. He pushes you for more and he looks for more from you. He looks for a decision from you. And the whole of the Gospel of Mark, the pinnacle of it is actually around about Mark chapter 8 where this conversation goes on between Jesus and the disciples where the disciples are talking to Jesus about who people say Jesus is. And he asks this question, he says, but who do you say that I am? And Jesus would ask that of all of you. And Jesus is going to be asking you that for the next however long we do Mark is he's going to be saying, who do you say that I am? Not who to, because the disciples say, well, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're one of the prophets. And Mark's going to keep bringing you back and saying, who do you say Jesus is? He's going to press you for a decision. You need to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. The last thing. The book of Mark is a life-altering story. Just look up on the screen there. I was talking to one of my sons about this last night, actually. I said to him, do you know that what was written about Caesar Augustus, the exact same thing Mark wrote about Jesus? No, Mark 1.1. 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The preen inscription, which I referred to uh, earlier, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And I asked my son, do you think Mark's been a bit of a stirrer? What do you reckon? Yeah, absolutely he is. But he's not just doing it to stir things up, is he? He actually knows that the most cataclysmic event, the most life-changing event is Jesus. That's what it is. It's Jesus. And it's way more significant than Caesar Augustus. And you know what? He gets straight into it. You know what he says there? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what the name Christ means? It's not his surname. Some people think that. It actually means anointed one or king. Listen to this. Before I, this will be clumsy. The beginning of the good news of Jesus, the anointed king, the son of God. The anointed king has come and broken into history in human form and is a direct challenger to the throne with Caesar Augustus. The anointed king has broken into human history and is a direct challenger to whatever else you put on the throne, the ruling throne in your life. And you know what? Some of you go, oh, he's getting negative. That's good news. Because I'm just telling you, there's nothing else you can stick on the throne of your life and have a productive, useful, peaceful life than Jesus Christ. The long-awaited divine king has come to rescue his people. If you're here today and you don't follow Jesus, you just need to know he's come to rescue you. He's come to rescue you. You know Caesar Augustus hasn't done it for you. You see, the gospel is about something that's happened that changes life in the future. 
See, the news about Caesar Augustus, listen to this, the gospel about Caesar Augustus is about something that's happened in the past. And what Mark's actually doing is he's going, this is just the beginning of the gospel. He's kind of twisted the gospel thing and he's gone, it's starting here. Look, at the best hasn't even happened yet. This is the start of it. And he's going to get to it. He's going to get to it in Mark 15, but he's going, we're looking forward. And you know what? The gospel doesn't end. It doesn't end when you become a Christian. Amen? It doesn't. I mean, the scriptures are clear that you go on being saved by the gospel all the time. I mean, you only have to get into uh, 2 Corinthians there. It talks about every single promise that God's ever made gets its yes from the death of Jesus. So when you pray and you ask God to, to help you in your anxiety, because you know there's a scripture that says, cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you, you know that he's going to answer and he's going to help because of the gospel. And I'd love it, I'd absolutely love it if, uh, and I think we already are, but I'd love it if gospel at the project became part of our terminology, because that's what we're on about. We want to be people who live in good news and want to be people that tell people about good news. Amen? I want to quickly look at uh, John 1, verse uh, 43 to 46. Here it is. Because I'd love this to be the sense that we have at the project. And before we read it, that's a bad teaching strategy, isn't it? Because you're all reading it, a lot of you. You know what? Before we read it, I mean, I've been in the church a long time and it, it bothers me no end and it's uh, probably a lot of it's my own issue. So I'll just say that. Because some of you go, I think that's your problem. And it probably is. A bunch of it. It bothers me no end when churches, you just feel like people have got an agenda, you know. And I was, I was in a church in Sydney and it was a new church. And it was a really good church. And, um, and they, they had this, um, this study program that we went through in small groups. And they always said, pick out a target person that doesn't know Jesus and kind of work on them I'm just going oh, I, I didn't like it I know, people are not targets amen people are not targets it's not like we've got to try and get someone to agree with us that's not what we're doing what we're, what we're doing is we're just telling people some good news and people can do with the news whatever they want and I'd love it if at the project we had the kind of flavour of John 1 Verse 43 to 46, here it is, let me read it. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He's, he's collecting disciples. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip went and found Nathanael and he said to him, man, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, is he telling the gospel? I reckon he is. Listen to what happens next. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Meringendan? I mean, Nazareth. I'm kidding. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Do you hear that? Skeptic. Straight up skeptic. Amen? What does Philip say? Well, just come and see. Come and see. You see, and that's part of the problem. Sometimes I think if you've been a Christian for a while... And you tell other people about Jesus, they just feel like you've got an agenda. And I, I would just encourage you to say, oh, just, just check him out. 
And you don't have to do anything I say. You don't even have to believe me. But why don't you just come and see? And that, that probably doesn't even mean coming to church. Just come and see. Come and check it out. And I'll say that to you today. If you're not a Christian here today and you don't follow Jesus, I'll just say, just check him out. He's okay with that. Check him out. See if he's the one that he says he is. Don't do it because we tell you. Yeah, and then Nathaniel identified him as Christ because he went and checked him out. Practical end here, and then we're going to finish. First one's this. For the, endur- uh, for the duration of us working through Mark, what the project's going to do is the project's going to buy copies and have copies on hand every single week of this book. Now, I think the most powerful use at this point in time, in my mind, the most powerful use of the message translation of the Bible is for people who don't go to church and who aren't people currently following Jesus. Now, this little book is just a tiny one. I'll just show you here. This is it here, okay? It's, um, it's the message. And the cool thing is, it's the whole of the book of Mark in the message. And uh, it's got a few extras at the end, some Psalms and some stuff out of Romans, Okay? I'm just going to promise you that to the best of our ability to supply them, we're going to have these every week. Now, some of you are going, oh, I'd like one of those. Well, you can go and buy one, okay? Because <laughs> we're not providing these for you. Because this, what you really want people to do is you want people to interact with the eyewitnesses about Jesus. You need them to interact with Jesus. They don't need to hear your Christian point of view on abortion, okay? That can come down the track. They don't need to hear your Christian point of view on homosexuality. That's down the track, right? What they, the first thing that they need to do is they just need to read Jesus. That's what this is going to give them, all right? So we've got this one and six others up the back, and I'll put this one up the back. So here's, here's the deal. These are free to a good home. Now, a good home is someone who doesn't go to church or someone who hasn't committed to follow Jesus. That's a good home. So I think it would be really cool... Because uh, I'm sure, and I know that there's lots of you that are having conversations with people about Jesus. you just got to get them reading Jesus and see what they think about him. This is a really easy way to do it. I think it would be great if, there were, if we ran out today. We've got more coming. We'll have more for next week. We'll just have them every week because we'd love you to be putting Jesus in people's hands. They can just read it for themselves. Is that cool? Always free to a good home. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. I'm going to hand these out. I always think, we did this at the start of uh, Hebrews, but uh, I think it's really useful to read the uh, books of the Bible as they were originally written. Now, chapters and verses didn't come in uh, to the Bible, I think around about the 1500s or somewhere, something like that, someone put them in. So what I like to do is take all the chapters and verses out, excuse me, just have paragraphs and give them to you, so that you can read the whole of the Gospel of Mark as he originally intended it. Is that cool? Now, if you like to do things electronically, I'll put a PDF version on the city, which is our social networking site. But I've got 50 copies here, so it's probably best if you don't take one each, but maybe one per family. And then I'll just encourage you over the next week or two, it's only 18 pages, which sounds like a lot, but it's not that much. Just sit down and have a read. And I'll tell you, if you... uh, If you get the chance to do it in one sitting, that would be a good thing. 
Because you need to just get a sense of the whole of the Gospel of Mark, not just bits and pieces. So, nice and you guys happy to help out. Good on you, Mark. Thanks for volunteering, mate. <laughs> All right. Now, that's that. The next thing is this. I, um, there's a really good short course that goes for six weeks called Christianity Explained. Some of you have heard of it. Uh, and I've used this a bunch of times. And what Christianity Explained is, is it basically goes through the fundamentals of Christianity coming out of the Gospel of Mark. And, it, and it's basically for you to take someone through who's, um, who's not a Christian or doesn't follow Jesus. And it just, it's not a pressure thing. It's just like we've been talking about Christianity and you seem pretty interested in it. We can just sit down for a few times and just work through some stuff so you're really clear about it so you can make a decision. Uh, it's not a pressure thing. I've done it a bunch of times. A bunch of people I've done it with have uh, decided to follow Jesus as part of it. Most of the time, they don't even do it when we're having a conversation. They kind of do it on the sly. Uh, they kind of come back for the next session. They go, you know, I actually prayed and asked Jesus to forgive me for all my sins and I decided to start following him because he's pretty good. And, and it's happened a bunch of times and I've personally found it really powerful. Uh, there's someone in the church taking a, someone through Christianity Explained at the moment. In fact, I'm going to start taking a guy through on this Wednesday. Um, and he doesn't go to church. And, he's, and he doesn't follow Jesus, but we've had a conversation about Jesus. And I said, hey, if you want to, we can sit down for a few times. We can look at Mark and you can see what Jesus is like and you can make an informed decision about it. And he said, yeah, I'd like to do that. So we're starting this, this Wednesday at 10. So you can pray for it if you want. And I'm not going to put him under any pressure. I'll just say, look, here's what Jesus is like. Here's what, here's what reality is, what the situation is. What are you going to do with him? So what I'm actually going to do on two Sunday nights... For, uh, we're going to go for an hour and a half each. We'll go 7.30 till 9pm. So the last Sunday in uh, October and the first one in November, I'm actually just going to... I want to take anyone who actually just wants to learn the basics of Christianity Explained and how to actually deliver it with someone. If there's two of you, I'll do it. If there's 20, I'll do it. I think it's really good. I actually think it's... Uh, I, I think probably it's good for everyone to have some kind of framework that they can actually take people through to help them to understand a little bit more and a little bit more deeply about Jesus... Uh, and it won't cost you a cent. So if your last name is Sondergeld, that's a real invitation. Um, just come, come out, we'll have it here, uh, 7.30 till 9. And hopefully by the end of the two nights, it's only two nights, um, you'll um, be really, you'll have a bit of a something that you can take people through. All right? And probably, I'm expecting this Wednesday, we're going to be done talking about it in probably 20, 30 minutes. It's not a big deal. But it just gets people to read little bits of Mark and work out who Jesus is and what Christianity is all about. And the last thing, project, is we're just going to be continually asking this question, who do you say that I am? So read Mark without chapters and verses. Take the message of hope up the back. Uh, if you're talking to someone and you think it would be useful for them to have a look at Mark, because Honestly, it's going to be good. You'll have the opportunity to say, look, we're actually working through this stuff at church. So take the, uh, the message of hope up the back there. Um, come along to Christianity Explained training on uh, Sunday the 26th and Sunday the, the 2nd of November. And, um, 
yeah, over the coming months, we'll keep looking at this whole thing of, of who Jesus is.